Well, you say that I'm an outlaw, you say that I'm a thief. Here's Christmas dinner for the families on relief. Now it's through this world I ramble. I see lots of funny men. Some will rob you with a six gun. Some with a fountain pen. And that was a little snippet from Woody Guthrie's ballad, Pretty Boy Floyd, which includes that reminder that I've made here before, which is relevant to today's conversation. Some will rob you with a six gun and some with a fountain pen. And in today's case, the fountain pen was the one used by the GOP and the president to sign what I like to call the GOP tax robbery bill. The tax cuts that shoveled hundreds of billions of dollars into the hands of the very rich and corporations. And guess what? It's worse than you imagine. Which is what we're going to talk about today. I'm also going to be talking to a progressive woman candidate who is looking to run and defeat Texas Senator John Cornyn. This is Jonathan Tassini, and this is the Working Life Podcast for January 8th, 2020. A reminder, as usual, that the podcast is sponsored by the American Postal Workers Union, which fights for dignity and respect on the job, and decent pay and benefits and safe working conditions for its 200,000 United States Postal Service employees and retirees and nearly 2,000 private sector mail workers. You can hear this podcast all over the internets like the Progressive Radio Network Thursdays at 6 p.m., or if you prefer, on Spotify, Stitcher, iTunes, you name it. We depend not just on our large sponsor, but small financial supporters like many of our listeners, so please go over to workinglife.org, click on the podcast tab. I know you've heard this before, and I know you're going to do this today, and you're going to find that link to Patreon, and you're going to go over to Patreon, and we thank you in advance, and become a small financial sponsor of the show at whatever level you can afford. Now, no one listening to this show will doubt what I say now. The GOP tax bill was a fraud, passed with an astounding, even by Washington elite standards, an astounding mountain of rhetorical lies. You may remember the main lie, right? That all this tax money would be shoveled back to the very rich and corporations, and that would mean more jobs and higher wages for workers because, well, of course— that money would be invested back into companies in the form of wages or maybe bolstering its core operations. And by the way, the tax bill would also close loopholes that would bring in more money from corporate taxes. I mean, you did know this was a lie, right? I mean, a big lie. All of this mumbo-jumbo of numbers of tax cuts going out and money allegedly coming in was all about cooking the books making it seem like the tax cuts would only cost a certain amount so they would pass certain criteria for passage in the Congress, principally that the tax cuts would not increase the overall deficit over a 10-year period. Well, <laughs> I'm laughing because we all knew it was a lie. And now with the close of 2019, and with the numbers in on taxes from a full year of corporate 2018 returns, we have the numbers to prove it. 
We already knew that hundreds of billions of dollars were being used by corporations not for workers' wages, but to buy back stock. And why is that? Because buying back stock usually boosts the share price of the company, which means that CEOs get much richer because the biggest part of their payday is usually in stock options. But it's even more stark than that. The Institute for Taxation and Economic Policy just put out at year's end another one of its rocking reports, and you can see that at itep.org. And the upshot, and now I'm quoting, the 379 profitable corporations identified in this study paid an effective federal income tax of 11.3% on their 2018 income, slightly more than half the statutory 21% tax rate. And that was the first paragraph I'm quoting. And I want to remind people that that 21% tax rate, the one that's listed in the books before they start deducting everything, that was a huge cut below what the tax rate was before this big tax bill. And the second part from the ITEP study that's important to point out, and now I'm quoting again, 91 corporations did not pay federal income taxes on their 2018 U.S. income. These corporations include Amazon, Chevron, Halliburton, and IBM. Now, to add to that, I just want to throw in a nugget from a recent New York Times investigation, one that I thought was quite good. And that investigation found that once the tax law was passed and it was rushed through in such chaos that legislators were voting on a bill that had handwritten amendments in the final version. The Treasury Department, run by Uber banker and proud class warrior on behalf of the wealthy Steven Mnuchin, then was overrun with corporate lobbyists. And what they did at the Treasury Department was rewrite rules and define regulations that gave even more money to banks and big corporations, way beyond even what the law passed by Congress had intended. That, my friends, is how our government is riddled with lobbyists and works for the very rich, not for you and me. Now, there is so much more, and I could read it all to you with my soft, soothing voice. But a better idea, by far, is to bring in ITEP's own and our favorite tax talker, Matt Gardner. And here we go again, Matt. I feel like this is deja vu all over again. Maybe I'm thinking I'm hearkening and waiting for baseball season. So I'm quoting my favorite philosopher, Yogi Berra, about here we go again, how corporations are just avoiding paying taxes. And once again, you guys have the definitive study on how all these big corporations have avoided paying taxes, and in fact, are getting subsidies from us as taxpayers. And this is all related to the Trump tax bill. And in your study, you identified 379 profitable corporations. And I want to underscore this idea that these are profitable corporations that essentially paid an effective federal income tax rate of 11.3% in their 2018 income. And that's slightly more than half the statutory 21% tax rate. Now, the first thing we have to point out is that that 21% tax rate is lower than it was historically, and it's the rate that was set by the Trump tax cuts, right? 
That's exactly right. Uh, until 2017, the tax rate at the federal level on paper was 35%. So, and that was what companies were supposed to pay. And of course, what we knew from our studies in the past was that companies were paying in the aggregate just a little bit more than half of that. That, you know, the effective tax rate was right around 21% last time we looked at it. And so the hope when Congress declared its intention, and President Trump did too, to cut the statutory tax rate almost in half from 35 to 21% was that if you're going to cut the rate that far, the least you can do is act responsibly and make it so that the sticker price is really what people are paying. So instead of uh, exempting half your profits uh, from tax, you're paying tax on basically all of your profits. And what the new study we just put out shows is that Congress appears to have made virtually no progress on that front. Then and now, companies are avoiding roughly half of the tax they ought to be paying through these various legal tax breaks. I'm shocked, shocked, shocked that this is happening. And, <laughs> and so I thought, I am laughing because it's so um, outrageous, it's, it's laughable. But I want to focus on the second bullet point in your study and the chart, the terrific chart, as usual, you guys do amazing charts that really break this down. The 91 corporations that did not pay federal taxes on their 2018 U.S. income, but in the chart, you actually have it headlined. 91 companies paying zero or less in federal income tax. And the focus to me is less because essentially what is happening, all these profitable companies in this chart, these 91 companies, JetBlue Airlines, and I'm just going to cite a few, Levi Strauss, FedEx, Chevron, Delta, Netflix, which is making money hand over fist, MGM Resorts, which runs casinos in Las Vegas, Starbucks, and of course, Amazon – we essentially are giving them money back, right? When we subsidize them, when they're paying a rate minus in your chart, we're giving them money back. That's exactly right. And if you think about it more broadly, uh, these companies as a whole, abstracting beyond the zero tax companies and going to the, the whole bucket of them, they avoided $74 billion of corporate income tax. Uh, that's what they would have paid if they all paid 21%. And when you talk about numbers that big, well, uh, you know, you know that our, our deficit last year was about a trillion dollars and 74 billion isn't, you know, it's, it's only less than 10% of that, but it's still a big chunk of it. And when the numbers get that big, when the revenue loss gets that big, it is hard to argue with the idea that in the end, someone has to pay for it and it's going to be somebody else. It's going to be you and me. Maybe it's going to be smaller businesses. Uh, more likely, given the proposals we've heard from the Trump administration lately, it's going to be harmful cuts in safety net spending or in any number of public investments that we all value. But it has to come from somewhere. And now to even telescope further down and cut a smaller slice, and you have another great chart about this, which are the 25 companies with the largest total tax subsidies. The three ones at the top are not surprising because we're going to talk about this in a second about how these regulations were actually then drafted once the law came into effect. The three ones that got the biggest tax breaks are Bank of America, JP Morgan, Wells Fargo. That's for a total of 
a, a little bit above $12 billion. And then just below them is Amazon run by Jeff Bezos, the richest guy in the world. And really what happens if you break it down to take away the numbers, these visible names get these biggest tax breaks for one reason and one reason only. They have the most effective and powerful lobbyists, right? In most cases, that's uh, absolutely right. I mean, they're also the biggest. So, uh, you know, Walmart's on the list and they pay a pretty high tax rate, but they still have a huge amount of tax subsidies because they're big. But in general, what you're looking at here is exactly what you said. Companies that have used their lobbying prowess to get a bunch of tax breaks enacted that narrowly benefit uh, them or their industry. And so, yeah, Bank of America alone getting $5.6 billion of tax breaks out of the $74 billion we identified, uh, J.P. Morgan, Wells Fargo. I mean, this is a pretty clear indicator that the benefits, just as the benefits from corporate tax cuts accrue narrowly to the uh, you know, the 1%, the, the, uh, the, the well-off shareholders who own most stocks, these tax cuts also accrue narrowly to a very small number of the very biggest corporations. It's not evenly spread among the Fortune 500 community by any means. And there's a moral argument here, a moral outrage that I often focus on, and especially when you're talking about an 11.3% effective tax rate, which as you found in this study, is the lowest effective tax rate in the last 40 years. And that's morally outrageous, and we're going to circle back to it. But I think you make a really good point that's about the economics here, and in fact, about the competition between companies. And you cite here in the study that what happens when you create these loopholes in the tax code, you create, and I'm going to quote now, huge economic distortions by giving some companies a tax advantage over their competitors. So there's got to be some competitors out there who must be pissed off when they see these numbers. I think that's right. Although uh, they generally tend not to express it when they put out these studies. Um, I'm sure they have another means of doing so. But uh, but yeah, I mean, I, th I think it's a pretty fundamental point. If you took a poll of the architects of corporate tax cut and asked them if they believe in free markets, they would, I imagine, all say they do. They, they believe these are fundamentally important. And yet, when you structure the tax system in a way that disproportionately benefits certain industries or certain firms in, in, a, in a given industry, you're destroying the level playing field. You're giving companies a competitive advantage based entirely on the tax laws. And, you know, in some cases, as is the case with Amazon, for example, you know, that's a company that has really structured their entire uh, strategy, economic strategy for, for decades around tax avoidance. But even when, uh, even when it's not the main motive, tax incentives, tax cuts, tax breaks for specific companies create economic inefficiency by encouraging companies to do things that common sense and the markets told them not to do. Right. And then, as you point out, that it disadvantages other companies. And then that translates, frankly, into when I think about this to workers, because those companies who then are in a competitive disadvantage, the first thing they're going to do is not take it out of the hide of the CEO, who's still going to make millions of dollars in pay and benefits. They're going to go to the rank and file worker and say, we're going to cut your health care. We're not going to give you any raises. Uh, yeah, that, that, that's certainly plausible. The, um, or they're going to go to Congress and lobby for even more tax breaks of their own. Um, and uh, the thing we know 
the sort of the, the harmful thing we know about providing tax cuts to specific industries and specific companies is that in the long run, it means sort of a death of a thousand cuts for the corporate income tax. No one in Congress will agree to straight up repeal the corporate income tax. There's no appetite for that. People know there'd be a public revolt if that happens. But they've figured out that if they keep enacting tax break after tax break for one company, then its competitor, then another industry, eventually you see this huge, large-scale erosion of the corporate tax base that amounts to the same thing. So I think the uh, the short-term and medium-term reaction from companies that are disadvantaged right now is to more aggressively seek to get tax breaks of their own. And that will lead us to a pretty harmful place where we see an acceleration of this long-term tax shift away from taxing corporations and toward taxing individuals. Mm. And you talk specifically in your report about industry-specific tax breaks. Let's just touch briefly on two of the ways in which they essentially avoid taxes, and this is across all industries. It's not specific to one in industry. And one is full expensing of capital spending. So let's explain that in the most user-friendly way what that is. Sure. Um, in a normal state of affairs, anytime a company made a capital investment, uh, new machinery or new equipment or, or a new factory, uh, the company would be allowed to write off the cost of that investment over the productive life of it. So if you buy a piece of machinery and it's going to last 20 years, well, you ought to be able to write off that cost evenly over 20 years. Accelerated depreciation, which has been in place in one form or another for the last uh, you know, 30 plus years now, lets companies write these expenses off faster than these things actually wear out. Full expensing lets companies in general write off their capital investments immediately in year one, even if the equipment that you're buying is going to last for 30, 40 years. You're, you're getting the whole tax break up front. So for industries that do a lot of capital investments, uh, utilities, manufacturing, oil and gas, you know, anyone where you need to buy a lot of stuff or get new equipment in order to make money, these companies, these industries are making money hand over fist in 2018 because of this radically increased uh, depreciation tax break. The really interesting thing about this to me, you know, you talk about Yogi Berra, uh, you know, this is uh, uh, this is exactly the same thing that Congress did once before. It, it's it's almost an exact carbon copy in direction, if not in scale, of the 1981 tax cuts uh, pushed through by President Reagan. He sharply cut the corporate tax rate, and he dramatically increased depreciation. And the critical difference is that almost immediately, uh, Reagan uh, realized that it wasn't working that they weren't encouraging more capital investment, which was the stated claim of doing it this time around, and that it was morally reprehensible, you know, in his view, to have big profitable companies paying nothing without getting anything in return. So we've been here before with this sort of experiment where we try to encourage capital investment. Uh, and the thing people forget, the thing that uh, supply side advocates would rather not mention, and that opponents of supply side would prefer not to mention for different reasons, is that not only did it not work last time, President Reagan knew it wasn't working. 
and reversed field and to his credit uh, helped to pare back the depreciation tax breaks to pare back his own corporate tax cuts with the goal of getting more money in a more equitable tax system. Uh, so yeah, it, it didn't work then. It doesn't appear to be working now. There's no evidence that the desired goal of these depreciation tax breaks, encouraging more capital investment, has materialized over the last year. Uh, you know, we're seeing roughly the same level of capital investment that we were before. To your point about the enormous profits they're making up front, it's even more so now with interest rates so low. Companies typically buy this kind of equipment by issuing uh, debt, uh, by getting loans uh, from banks. And with interest rates so low, they're making even more money hand over fist because it's spread out in terms of the repayment over 30 years, even though they're getting the break right now. That's right. And um, and that's what people were saying two years ago as well, right? Interest rates were low. So companies that didn't have access to cash already uh, could easily borrow it if they saw the need to invest in, in manufacturing or equipment or, or, or for that matter, to hire more people. Uh, and companies that didn't have the cash could easily borrow it. These were the straightforward arguments that were being made uh, in advance of the tax cuts of 2017. What swayed the day, what, what helped convince Congress to ignore this economic consensus that this would not work was a really effective sales pitch on behalf of the companies that would benefit from them. There was a terrific article in the New York Times a few weeks ago detailing the you know, pretty extravagant promises that were made by the CEO of FedEx in particular, who made it his goal to get these depreciation tax breaks through. You know, he he promised the moon and the stars in terms of capital investment, this wave of uh, new capital investment, new job creation, and in general, a boom in the economy that would result if Congress enacted this specific tax break, uh, full expansion of capital investment. And those lies, if I can use that expression, were also uh, a central part of the way in which the Republicans sold the entire tax bill, especially Donald Trump sold the tax Built to the people, saying there was going to be all this money that was going to go to create jobs. And we know because you guys did the study, you and I talked about this on this podcast some time ago, most of a, a huge chunk of that money went, in fact, to stock buybacks. And the people who really benefit from the stock buybacks are the CEOs, especially, and shareholders, but especially the CEOs, because when the stock goes up, as you well know, they get more money, they earn more money because of the amazing stock options they have, which is a great transition to the second point that you made in this study, that stock options are another place in which this scam happens, the way in which essentially corporations reduce their uh, tax liabilities. And explain that briefly. Sure. Um, when companies pay their workers in cash and salaries, the way most of us are paid, they are sensibly allowed to write off salaries as a deductible expense, as a cost of doing business. When companies pay their workers, and especially when, as has happened a lot in the last couple of decades, when they pay their high-paid executives in the form of stock options uh, rather than cash, uh, stock options being the the option to buy stock at an artificially low price, uh, companies are also allowed essentially to pretend that that is a cash expense 
that a dollar of stock out of their pockets is is really they're spending a dollar. We know that's not the case and is nowhere near the case. But because we allow it to happen, uh, companies that have focused on rewarding their CEOs with uh, and their high-paid executives with stock options are able to substantially reduce their taxes overall. Amazon is a big example of this. Facebook historically has been a heavy user because they relied heavily on stock options as well. So it really is a phantom cost. It's not a real cost uh, reducing available cash for these companies, but they are allowed to pretend that it is for tax purposes. Mm. Okay, so now the second part of how I want to address this with you and really dig into this is the recent article in the New York Times. Uh, this is a different article. This was just recently that looked at how the tax bill and the outlines of the tax bill, how they were actually implemented at the administrative level. Now, we know the whole tax bill process, the legislative process was entirely chaotic. I mean, they pulled this bill together in a few weeks. I remember the uh, famous picture that Dick Durbin, the senator from Illinois, posted a photo, he tweeted it, that showed that literally the tax writers had written in longhand um, in a number of the sheets of the tax bill. They wrote in longhand some of the provisions, and it, you could barely read it, actually. And that's the way in which legislators, people in the Senate, and certainly in the House, but certainly people in the Senate, were asked to vote on the bill with, a, with, with additions made in longhand. But so let's put that aside. It was a chaotic uh, process. And then it moves over to the administrative level. And as you well know, and I'm really explaining this to my listeners, the job of these administrative departments, the agencies, is to take a bill, look at what it says, and then to figure out how to actually implement it, to draw up regulations that match what was in the legislation. And it turned out, and the New York Times article, I think, was terrific in explaining this, it turned out that really the Treasury Department went ahead, partly because of a huge lobbying campaign by big, powerful interests, and especially banking interests, and essentially it perverted the law. They did not follow what the law was intended to do, and they gave even more exceptions and even more tax breaks to certain industries. Explain that. Sure. Well, there's two parts to this story, and I think you just alluded to both of them. One is the very hasty and poorly thought out and poorly vetted way in which this legislation was drafted and rammed down the throats of Congress. There was you know, those of us who were awake for 20 hours of the day during that week when they were really putting it all together can attest that there was not a whole lot of thought given to the process. Somebody had to have all the fun, Matt. So you had to do that, you know, for staying up for 22 hours. That was your job. You got to have all the fun. Well, I think the uh, the folks that were writing the bill were up, up as well, but they weren't thinking as hard about it. And in a lot of cases, they just didn't spell things out as well as you needed to to have an implementable law. Under normal circumstances, when Congress goes through the hearing process and debates every element of legislative intent, you still end up with cases where the IRS and Treasury are required to fill in some blanks. That always happens. But here, what happened was that the, the, the sketchiness, the lack of detail and legislative intent and legislative history, because the thing happens so quickly, left Treasury with a lot of room to interpret things as they saw fit, and in some cases, as this New York Times article uh, describes, to pretty much make new law on their own and uh, and to 
write the regulations implementing these complicated new tax changes in a way that actually made the tax cuts bigger. That's uh, that's the finding of the New York Times report. The What makes this especially troubling is that, uh, as, as you know, one of the biggest features of the new tax law is a move to what's called a territorial tax system, where instead of trying to make sure that companies don't ship their profits tax-free into tax havens, we pretty much say we're not going to try to tax any profits that companies shift shift offshore. And the only safeguards against that, there are two new features, two new backstops, guilty and beat, they're called, both acronyms, that are designed to make sure that companies pay a little bit on their offshore profits, that they're not just completely making uh, money with intangible profits uh, offshore in the Cayman Islands. And so there was intense interest for the last couple of years in whether these backstops would work, whether we'd have some kind of thing preventing companies from avoiding all income tax offshore. And as it happens, these two provisions, these two super important safeguards were the focus of this lobbying blitz over the last two years. Companies, industries, especially banking, as you mentioned, tried very hard to make sure that when the regulations were written that implement these safeguards, uh, they were written in a way that would basically defang them, that would make it so that they did, in fact, allow companies to engage in the same short sort of offshore shenanigans they were doing before the tax code was passed. And the story the New York Times tells pretty convincingly is that through a full court lobbying blitz, uh, a number of industries were able to get Treasury to write the regs in a way that effectively enacted a whole new set of tax cuts and let industries, uh, banking in particular, off the hook. Mm. And just so my listeners understand, the acronym that Matt was referring to, the two of them were BEAT, B-E-A-T, and that stands for Base Erosion and Anti-Abuse Tax. And the other one, GILTI, which is actually G-I-L-T-I, stands for Global Intangible Low Taxed Income. And it's almost Freudian, I think, to call it GILTI because it, it, it really gives you a sense of dealing with these companies that are really guilty of this kinds of tax evasion. But what was interesting in the New York Times story, and please do uh, add to this, is they described in detail the actual players in this. And it turned out that one of the top people at Treasury, who was essentially doing the bidding of these corporations who are in this full court press, for decades, his job in the private sector was, in fact, to advise companies how to avoid paying taxes. And so he ran, among other things, places to the Treasury Secretary, Steve Mnuchin, who, as we know, comes out of the banking sector. And they concocted, along with other top officials, what you just described, a whole new set of rules that essentially end up exempting many industries, including Mnuchin's own friends in the banking industry. Now, you cannot describe the sort of inside lobbying and the corruption, essentially, that happens in government any better than this example. I think that's exactly right. And any sensible person's definition of the swamp, the swamp that President Trump proposed to drain, uh, would come right to this, this revolving door between lobbying and government. And when you see people parachuting directly from uh, bank lobbies into the Treasury's uh, Office of Tax Policy to write the regulations governing the taxation of banking, that's as swampy as it gets. And 
it's, um, you know, no one would view it as, as a remotely ethical way of, of doing things. But it's low profile. It's way beyond the radar of most people. And they got away with it. Wow. It was a, a heist in almost in broad daylight without using guns. It was uh, using the power of the pen, as uh, Woody Guthrie used to sing. Um, the last question to you, and this is really the big picture issue, is as you well know, when the tax bill was being debated, there was a requirement that the cost of the tax bill be less than $1.5 trillion over 10 years. But essentially, that was in order for it to pass muster with all sorts of congressional regulations, which we won't dig into the weeds on. People are just going to have to trust us on that here right now. But essentially, what has happened with all that we just described is the cost of that tax bill is much higher. So it essentially violated the terms of the way in which it was passed, not to mention it is now then putting more burden on the average working person, right? Yeah, I think that's exactly right. And the uh, the clear conclusion, even before this New York Times article uncovered, uh, you know, the scale of what's been going on with the regulations, there was always a suspicion that the revenue estimates, uh, official revenue scores from the tax bill were unnecessarily optimistic. And of course, we knew that um, the there was this classic, I won't call it classic, uh, this awful, but now traditional uh, accounting move where Congress made all the tax cuts on the individual side temporary to go away in 2025 while making the corporate ones permanent to help fit all these tax cuts in the $1.5 trillion box. So the accounting was pretty shady to begin with. It was already clear to anyone uh, who's been around the block that the 10-year cost was going to be bigger than the allowable $1.5 trillion. And the clear message that this latest story sends is that this hole may be even bigger than anyone had anticipated. Um, and yeah, there's no question that in the long run, uh, this missing revenue, this imbalance between revenue and spending will come out of the rest of our pockets because there is no more progressive approach to taxation than the corporate income tax. Anything else you can choose is going to propose, uh, it's going to put a much bigger impact on middle and low income families than the corporate income tax. So the big losers out of this shift is everyone other than this small cadre of Fortune 500 corporations. Political realities just kind of suck. I mean, we'd all like to just believe that a mass uprising is on its way and it will sweep every opponent from our path. Birds will sing, the sun will shine, and presto, every progressive idea will become the law of the land within, say, a month. But a point I keep making to my progressive friends is that we also have to be very honest about the certain facts, as in... All good ideas will die in the United States Senate if Mitch McConnell is the majority leader, and they may meet a similar fate if Democrats win the Senate majority in 2020 with, say, 
a 52 to 48 margin, which is about as optimistic a number you could honestly come up with. Because that majority, a Democratic majority of 52 members, would include people like Joe Manchin from West Virginia, who has no interest in supporting Medicare for all or free college tuition. Which is why the race to defeat John Cornyn in Texas is not only important in terms of the overall number, but it's important in terms of which Democrat ends up facing Cornyn and hopefully becoming a U.S. senator. There are plenty of centrist Democratic candidates running in the primary, which will be held March 3rd, but one candidate is actually solidly progressive. Christina Tsinsun Ramirez. In her 20s, Christina was a founder of the Workers' Defense Project, whose mission was to make sure workers, especially Hispanic workers, had basic rights and were safe on the job, protecting them from the typical dangerous conditions that millions of workers, especially immigrant workers, face because corporations don't care. In fact, as an aside, though especially relevant to the work Christina has done, the National Council for Occupational Safety and Health, that's National Kosh, just noted in a study that we're going to talk about on this podcast in an upcoming episode, that there has been a spike in the number of deaths and injuries in the workplace. And I'm quoting from that study, communities of color continue to pay a high price for the failure of their employers to implement safe workplace practices. Workplace fatalities among African-American workers increased by 16% in 2018, while deaths among Latinx workers were up 6%. And that's the end of that quote. Now, Christina left the Workers' Defense Project in 2015 to form an organization called JOLT, which is aiming at mobilizing young Hispanic voters. And Christina now joins me to talk about her campaign. You've done some really incredible progressive work over many years, Christina. And first of all, you co-founded the Workers' Defense Project, which was a great advocate and is still a great advocate for working families to make sure that they have good, safe jobs. And you also, after the 2016 election, started something called JOLT, J-O-L-T. And that's where I kind of want to start our conversation. And the purpose of JOLT was to essentially get young Latino voters registered and then mobilize them to vote. And this leads me to the following question and a musing that I had as I was thinking about our conversation. There's been a lot of talk about Texas changing from a red state to a purple state or a blue state, in other words, becoming more progressive, more quote-unquote democratic. And I wonder, and I think this is probably true about lots of places, not just Texas, but is it a fact and do you think that actually Democrats will grow and more people will be drawn to the Democratic Party if we in fact have more progressive candidates like yourself? And that is, if you have people that are going against someone like John Corner who are centrist and corporate Democrats, that's not going to excite people, right? Yeah. In in Texas for the last uh, 20 years previous to Beto O'Rourke running, the way people ran in this state was to run Republican light um, with the idea that if you ran as a moderate, you would swing Republican voters and win. And in Texas, that has proven to be a fairy tale. And in fact, that strategy has gotten us farther and farther away from flipping the state. Um, now, Beto ran as the most progressive candidate that's run 
statewide that I can ever remember. Um, and he ran also embracing the state's diversity, um, defending the rights of immigrant families and standing up and alongside the Black Lives Matter movement and against, against police brutality. Um, and he got closer than anyone has, 2.6 percentage points. Our state is not the state that many people imagine today. We are majority people of color. One in the eligible voters by 2022 are under the age of 30. And in 2018, there was a 500% increase in the youth vote. If you ask the diverse voters that are needed to get out and win Texas and flip the state, what issues they care about or who their party is, most of them are going to say they don't like Trump. They're not necessarily going to be excited alone by Democrats. What they care are about real issues like raising the minimum wage. They care about legalizing marijuana. They care about canceling student debt and protecting the rights of immigrant families and remaking our criminal justice system. Those are some of their top issues and also health care for all because in Texas, we have the highest uninsured rate in the country. So you have to have a agenda that is as big and bold as our state, I believe, to win as a progressive, which is why I'm running my campaign in that same way and with that same vision. And oddly enough, I want to start with uh, health care and Medicare for one. And when I say oddly, I mean it in the following way, that to be a progressive, you could also make very, very solid economic arguments that would appeal to people that might not traditionally think of them Cells as progressives. And I think you make an awesome point that I think is often forgotten in the debate around Medicare for all that number one, obviously, it's the most efficient and cost effective way to make sure every American has quality health care. But what has always blown my mind is why isn't there a massive outpouring of small businesses and even big businesses who say we need Medicare for all because we don't want to just keep dumping money down the drain that should go to all sorts of other things like wages, for example. And instead, we're dumping it into health care costs. And you make this excellent point that, in fact, those folks can be allies because they don't want to have to spend all this money on health care costs, right? Yeah, you know, I think if you look at the Democratic field I'm in, obviously against John Cornyn, I'm the the candidate that's the most friendly and the biggest ally of small businesses. But I actually think the most progressive side, people that fight for Medicare for all, are also the most important ally and friend of small businesses. So in the United States, there are 30 million small business owners, and half of them are unable to provide Currently, less than half of them are um, unable to provide health insurance to their workers. So that means they're having to compete against huge corporations that can provide better benefits, that are able to negotiate at a much larger scale. You want to talk about an equalizer in our economy that will boost the growth in small businesses and entrepreneurship. I think that policy is Medicare for all. Um, and that's why one of the reasons why I support it. And, you know, I ran two small nonprofits. And, you know, we had like 30 employees. And I remember every year we would have to go through who was going to be our health insurance company, what plan we were going to be able to provide our employees. And I always worked to cover 100% of the premium for our employees. And that was very expensive to do. And still, I offered health care to our employees where they would have to, if they got, went to the doctor, you know, they might out a thousand, five hundred or a couple grand if they went to the hospital in the emergency room because that's what their deductible was. Um, and you, then you talk about the fact that 60% of Americans have more than a thousand dollars in savings. 
the fact that uh, we know that upwards of two thirds of people declaring bankruptcy is tied to medical debt. This in the richest nation in the world, it is obviously an incredibly broken system. It's a broken system for the American taxpayer, and it's a broken system for the American people. And just to underscore the point you just made, you essentially ran twice small businesses. I mean, they were nonprofits, but they are small businesses in the sense that you have to sit there with your pen and paper. Maybe uh, man, I'm not, that's dating me, I guess. Maybe people use only and computers. an Excel sheet, an Excel sheet. Uh, <laughs> Formulas, budgeting, yes. <laughs> and exactly. And you have to realize that in order to cover my employees in the same way that the small business on the metaphorical main street has to do that, you have to figure out how to pay for folks when you know that the most logical way to do that is a national system. So you actually can speak that language to small business owners. Yeah. And I, I meet a lot of entrepreneurs and small businesses that are some of the most strong advocates for Medicare for all because know what would help them be able to keep employees, employees uh, and that people wouldn't have to be basing where they work based on their health care um, or based on their spouse and that would allow small businesses to compete with big businesses if we were all paying into the same system that gave everyone the same quality of care. And as a small business owner, what would help me as well is being able, instead of spending time going through really complicated insurance policies that I believe offer sub-care at a really high cost, that I would be able to focus on running my business and my employees would be able to know that anytime they needed a surgery or to go to the doctor, that they would simply have that care, that that would be a fundamental and basic right that they had as Americans, as workers and contributors to this country. Um, and I think we would be a much better nation and we would actually see our economy grow substantially with a system like Medicare for all. So what has happened in your campaign that you can point to that you think underscores the nature of the progressive nature of Texas and the kind of support you're gathering for this kind of progressive vision? You know, I'm really proud that I have the support of people, political legends like Jim Hightower and then young Latinos that have never been engaged in politics before. They may not even, some of my supporters, be able to tell you who John Cornyn is. If you put him up in the lineup, they wouldn't even know who he was, but that they feel motivated and mobilized and seen by someone running for office for the very first time in their lives. And I'm talking, you know, abuelita, grandmas um, in their 60s, people that I've visited in the Valley, which is our, our border part of the state, to young girls in Dallas, um, children of immigrants that, you know, were crying when they met me because they felt like they actually had the power in their hands to transform Texas because no one that has run for office has truly told them that. We assume, especially amongst the Latino population, that they know they are this sleeping giant in Texas. In my experience, Many Latinos think we make up 10 or 15 percent of the state's population because we are consistently under attack, consistently made to feel like a minority in our own state, in our own home, made to feel like outsiders. And what I tell the people that I go reach is that we are under attack and under assault because people fear our power. And they should because we are determined to come together and change not just Texas, but the entire country with it. 
Now, another area where it seems to me that you are potentially not only the advocate for workers, but also, again, small businesses, the whole community, is the issue of trade. And it is always fascinating to me that Republicans and corporate Democrats all talk about how they are for small businesses. But when you actually look at the trade agreements, and I've looked at this stuff going back to the old NAFTA, not just the remade NAFTA that they've just come to an agreement on, but all those trade agreements essentially are about protecting big business and big corporate interests, especially big finance, big capital, big pharmaceutical companies. And so when you talk about a smart trade policy, how do you view as a senator what you would be pushing for? And where would you make those kinds of changes that would really do better for all people? Yeah, you know, you can look at something like the North American Free Trade Agreement. I really saw the impact of a policy that has led purely on what it will do for large-scale corporations and not for working people and not for the environment. So I worked for a time period with the United Auto Workers um, and saw the long-term impacts that NAFTA had had on good manufacturing jobs in our country that were shipped abroad. And then I also worked with immigrant workers and um, saw how we decimated the agricultural communities of Mexico by flooding the market with cheap corn that then uh, made people have to migrate to the United States to survive economically. You know, it's really clear. Trade can be good, but it also, at the negotiating table, has to be the interests of workers, of unions, and um, protecting the environment. But trade, where the purpose isn't just about, again, the profit margins of corporations, but making sure that we are supporting good local small businesses, that we are understanding the long-term impacts on workers um, and families and the environment, that if you look at trade policies and uh, that are being looked at like by Elizabeth Warren, I think, has thought through really smartly how we change our approach to trade. But that's also what I want to do, because I think Texas, obviously, is one of the states that has the most invested in making sure we have better sound trade policy on both sides of our border and across the globe. You touched my own heart when you said you had worked for the United Auto Workers because I'm a proud UAW member. I have been for oh, over, over 20 years. But the, the point you made is really important that these economic issues are very tied to immigration and it's tied to our foreign policy. Trade is at the heart of that, that if you impoverish people on one side of the border, especially in Mexico, and you pointed out what happened under NAFTA to small scale farmers, then if they're thrown off their land, they're looking around and they're saying, what can I do to have my family make a living and make sure they survive? They're going to want to migrate to another country. People don't leave their homes usually because they want to. They flee their homes. They migrate in mass numbers largely because of economic or political necessity. Sometimes they're political refugees, but oftentimes they're economic refugees. And certainly NAFTA and all these trade agreements prove that. Yeah. You know, if we look at the years when um, we saw the largest increase in migration from Mexico to the United States. We're looking at post-NAFTA years. We're looking at the years when we transformed agricultural communities across Mexico with trade policies that sounded really smart for benefiting large-scale corporations in the United States, but we didn't think about the impact for Mexican farmers. Um, farmers unions were excluded from being at the negotiating table um, with NAFTA. If 
any trade policy that I want us to look at rewriting is going to make sure that there are unions for agricultural workers, for manufacturing workers, environmentalists sitting at that negotiating table, making sure we think through the long-term impacts and the short-term impacts and benefits that we could have, not just for corporations, but for people in our planet. And as a United States senator, you will have a big fight, as big a fight within the Democratic Party, as you well know, because unfortunately, many of these trade agreements, especially in in the United States Senate, had a lot of support from Democrats, from what I call centrist or corporate Democrats. And they made the argument that somehow this was good for everybody. But of course, it benefited big corporations. And I'm thinking, including uh, the current minority leader, potential majority leader, Chuck Schumer, he's been in favor of many of those trade agreements too. So that's going to be a fight you're going to have to have in your own caucus. But we'll wait for that day when you're after you're sworn into office. I do want you to put on your hat as the Workers' Defense Project person, the organization that you co-founded. And you mentioned it on your website a couple of things that I wanted to touch on. First of all, that we need to raise the minimum wage to $15 an hour. And you also added we have to ensure that it is tied to inflation. And I want to just play a little bit of a counterpoint to that, that to me, tying the minimum wage, even if it gets to $15 an hour to inflation, is not good enough. Because if you look right now, inflation is quite low, but people still can't pay their bills because housing is going up, food costs are going mm-hmm. up. So I would argue that just tying it to inflation is not good enough. What's your thought about that? You know, the the minimum wage, when we talk about making it $15 an hour, we've been talking about that for several years. There were in Texas, our minimum wage is seven twenty-five an hour. Um, we need to raise the minimum wage, but it has to be a living wage, um, and it can't be based on the political will um, or desires of people seeking elected office or corporations. It has to be based on the needs of the American people. And there are different ways to explore how we do that and how we get to that figure. Um, but I know that. I'm proud that Democrats are finally talking about how we have a living wage instead of just a minimum wage. The fact, again, that 60% of Americans don't have more than $1,000 in savings. What I think Democrats failed to understand, some Democrats, is the deep economic harm and pain the majority of Americans experience and live every single day across this country. And raising the minimum wage is just the tip of the iceberg. We have to talk about how we build a stronger labor movement to have um, unions that protect the interests of middle class and working class families, about how we address runaway inequality, about how we build a tax system that is actually fair and in the best interest of Americans and our country, instead of in the interests of just a few billionaires that currently run our political system and economy that has built a very weak economy um, that is not benefiting the majority of Americans. And you're absolutely right. The minimum wage is just the tip of the iceberg because actually the minimum wage, if you look at productivity over the last 20 or 30 or 40 years, should actually be above $20 an hour. But what you did, I think, quite well is underscored the point about unionization because really, and I know you know this as coming from the Workers' Defense Project, really only having a union provides a real living wage because as we know, looking at lots of communities around uh, the country, whether you go to coal mining communities or steelworkers workers or public employees, those are the folks that are getting what we could consider a living wage with benefits, health care coverage, and so on, right? That's right. 
And, you know, that's also when why I support Medicare for all, because I think it's a big equalizer. It helps Americans focus on increasing their quality of life. When I go to Washington, I really want us to start talking about how we measure how well our economy is doing, not just based on how well big corporations are doing, but by how well ordinary people are doing. How much does the average American have in savings? How much do they have in in their retirement account? How much time, free time, do they have to spend with their families and children? Um, That is the kind of economy that I care about, is an economy where people have a strong social safety net, where they are able to support their families and communities. They're not having to work multiple jobs or be working for 60 or 80 hours in one job. Um, the truth is too, we work so many hours, especially in Texas. We work more hours than most people in other states, but you sure wouldn't know it by looking inside our pocketbooks because um, the average Texan makes under $47,000 a year. Well, that'll do it for this week's podcast. Thanks to my guests, Matt Gardner and Christina Tsinsun Ramirez. Our audio editor, as usual, is David Hebden. Thanks to our major sponsor, the American Postal Workers Union. Please do become one of our small sponsors or modest sponsors. You can do that by going over to workinglife.org, looking for the podcast tab, and then looking for the link to Patreon. And then you can become a financial sponsor at whatever level you can afford. Thanks for listening. Look forward to having you back next week.